gonna be rough. <laughs> hello, 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 everyone, and welcome back to the So Below Average podcast, the show that might end up sending me to the hospital with some sort of brain aneurysm. I guess I wasn't kidding about Evil Born jumpstarting my seasonal depression, because very obviously this episode is coming out very, very, very late. <laughs> um, I finally recovered from last episode, Depression and Demon Babies, which kind of left me it kind of left me wiped out um, because of all the terrible things wrong with it. But now I think it's been well rectified and I'm ready to go. So now that I'm back on my feet, I feel like I'm ready to tackle something very different. Our very first book review. Dun dun dun. Okay, I'm going to say this now <laughs> for everyone. This episode took significantly more effort than one of my usual episodes. For one, it took exponentially longer to read this shitty book than it does to watch one of the shitty movies. I always read or watch everything two to three times before I put out a review on it. Uh, The first time is always for plot, the second time would be for critique, and then the third time is for details. So this took a very, very long time to put together. If you're wondering what we're doing today in this episode... Therapy and Throwing Stones, we are talking about Stones to Abigail by Onision. For those of you who don't know, Stones to Abigail is a coming-of-age story about a boy named James who falls in love with a girl named Abby, who has a dark past that James hopes to heal with his love and devotion. For those of you who do know, the story behind this book is dark, twisted, and fucked up in real life. I'll get into this in a moment, but I want to say this. I'm reviewing this book because it's terrible and the story behind it is pretty fucking terrible too. I know that the author's name is one of those things that kind of guarantees you views. While I respect everyone who does start their channels out by talking about him, I want to make it known that that's not my intention here. My intention here is to inform and to rant, not to use him to bolster my own fame. With that said, I'm not going to be monetizing this episode. If you like my review and want to stick around, that's awesome. If you're here for Greg, then I'm glad to have you here anyways. I hope you enjoy the episode because a fair bit of this is going to be me wailing on him with his shitty book. With that, here's my disclaimer. Oh, um, in this case, guys, I actually did go to school for English. I have a degree in this shit. This is my topic. I have a bachelor's degree in creative writing and took more of my fair share of literature classes. I'm currently working on my master's degree in creative writing, and then I'm hoping to get my doctorate in English later on. This is what I do. This is my shit. Of course, everything in this podcast is fair use, and all opinions are my own. Nobody's paying me to have these opinions very clearly, because otherwise you'd have better audio, because I would get a better mic than this $30 one that I got on Amazon to start my podcast, guys. I'm a little broke. Come on. Nobody's paying me for this review, and honestly, Greg might try to sue me for my critique. 
so I'm really not making any money. <laughs> um, also, please note my personal bias. I don't like Onision. I've never liked Onision, and I will continue not to like him, his alleged actions towards women, or his brand of shitty shock comedy. So you're free to take part of this review with a grain of salt. I also want to mention that I will be getting into the allegations against him a little bit because I think it's pertinent to the review. There's a little form of literary critique that I'm going to use that's based off of the work of early psychologist Sigmund Freud. Now, Freud's work has been almost universally discredited, um, but his psychoanalysis work has continued to be used by literary critics throughout the genres, and it's still considered a very genuine form of critique. I am fairly well-versed in Freudism, so you may see it pop up from time to time. Mind you, I never know for certain whether my speculation is what is going on, truly. I'm not a psychologist, but I'd like to think that I can find a logical fallacy from time to time. Okay, with that out of the way, let's get into the production of the book. Okay, okay so a great deal of my critiques of this book have to do with my critiques of this author, so this section is going to be a little longer than normal. I hope you don't mind. Please note that I will do my best to keep this as brief as possible, but it's still probably going to take ten fucking minutes just to get through this fucking peat bog of a biography. I'm skipping over a lot here, just saying. If you want to know anything about this dude, search his name online, search what I'm talking about on YouTube. Somebody will have made a video on it. This guy's been making content that has been pissing people off for ten years. Ten years. You will find something, I promise. The novel was written by Gregory Jackson, who's, who also goes by Gregory Avero, James Jackson, James Avero, Greg Daniel, or most famously, Onision. In this review, I'm going to be referring to him as Greg. I know that he now prefers to go by James to separate himself from his shitty actions, but if I call him James, I'll inevitably end up mixing up him and the main character, and I will not refer to him as Onision often, because I don't believe that he deserves the anonymity of a pseudonym. Anyway, Greg was born on November 11th, 1985, and as of February 21st, 2020, he is 31 years old and is a resident of Gig Harbor, Washington, which is around 23 miles outside of Seattle, where this story begins. After graduating high school, Jackson chose to do three years of service in the Air Force, which is its own fucking mind-boggling saga. Um, there's a YouTube video by some um, a commentary channel named Tommy C., where he talks about uh, Onision's military service. While I can't personally comment anything on a veteran's military status or anything, they can. They are Iraq vets, and I think that their video is very much worth looking into, so if you'd like to, I think you should go look at it. I will link it in the description down below on YouTube. After he got out of the military, he expanded his YouTube channel, and he's had quite the career, if that's what you want to call it. He's been making comedy videos for years and branched out into commentary as well on his Onision Speaks channel. Don't go to it. Don't do it. <laughs> um, he's amassed quite a following of people, mostly under the age of 18, which has led to some unfortunate circumstances nowadays, which have led mainstream journalism to get involved which, with what he's done in his personal life and online. Onision's choices have now landed him on Chris Hansen's radar. Yes, that Chris Hansen from Dateline and To Catch a Predator. The most recent allegations involve 
extortion, coercion, grooming, statutory rape, transmission of inappropriate sexual material featuring a person under the age of 18, and all sorts of other goodies ranging from fraud, violating the Mann Act, to misusing the 911 system. The worst of the more recent allegations comes from Sarah, a 19-year-old girl who had the ja- who the Jacksons had guardianship over and allegedly groomed from the time she was 14 until the time she was 18 to 19. Most of her allegations are so disgusting that it's actually vomit-inducing. So if you'd like to learn more about the victim stories, I would suggest going to Chris Hansen's YouTube channel at Have a Seat with Chris Hansen and listening to the interviews with all of the victims, most prominently Sarah and one of his other exes, Shiloh. I will warn you, they're all fairly graphic and harrowing, but they are quite informative on what you should be looking at if somebody is asking you for something in the media. Beyond the allegations, Greg's artistic process is kind of shady. Stones to Abigail was written in 2014 and published on March 26th of 2015, which is kind of ironic that I'm publishing this review literally a month before its fifth anniversary. This will come out on the 26th of February of 2020. Originally, the novel was published as an ebook on Amazon, although it is now unfortunately in print. Don't worry, guys, I got my book secondhand, so I personally didn't give him any of my money. The novel was originally published as a coming-of-age novel, but he soon changed his tune and listed the book as a contemporary romance novel. And personally, I think listing this novel in either category is utter horseshit, but between the two of them, contemporary romance is absolutely the better choice, but I'm going to get into that later. One thing that I do want to mention right now is the fact that despite the fact that Greg has labeled this a fiction book, he has made the statement that this book is somewhat autobiographical. Because of this, he has publicly shamed other reviewers for its criticism and for the criticism of certain characters, particularly the main character's best friend, Davis, who apparently actually died in real life. While I do maintain that this death in real life was a tragedy and untimely, Greg listed this novel as fiction. Fiction is completely open for interpretation and criticism. If you wanted to avoid open character critique, Greg, then you should rewrite and publish it as a memoir. It's the honest thing to do, since you're kind of lying about it being fiction, right? As it serves, I'm going off of your words that this is fiction, so come at me, Greg. Anyway, when this book was published, Greg listed the pseud- his pseudonym Onision as the author and Lainey as the editor. Lainey is the dead name of his female-to-male transgender husband, Kai, sometimes also known as Eli, who he also conned into dating him when Kai was 16 or 17, and Jackson was in his mid to late 20s. <coughs> excuse me. Whew, excuse me, I had to retch there. From what I know about his editing process, he says he went through three drafts, which is fairly typical for a shorter novel, but most good writers, I find, edit far more than that and have everything peer-reviewed by people who know what they're talking about. Like, actual writers or professional editors or people who at least know something about formatting and decent storytelling. That being said, I applaud Kai's attempts, but not even he could seem to find and replace all of the spelling and grammatical errors. 
They are everywhere. I found probably a hundred of them. I wasn't looking too closely for them because I know other people have commented on this. Mainly two YouTubers, one of whom is named Tia. She's also known as Strange Aeons. She is a fabulous YouTuber. I highly suggest you go check out her channel. I'll link it down below. And Crimson Rogue, who is one of my favorite book review channels. He's awesome. He um, does the Book Was Better show. And I really think that he could be a wonderful show if you guys want to hear more really good in-depth book reviews because I'm not doing this very often because of the sheer amount of effort that goes into this. But anyway, spelling errors. The sheer amount of run-on sentences that Greg decided to use here are appalling as someone with a legitimate English degree. And Greg, if you'd like to see my transcripts, because I know you're probably listening, I'm more than happy to provide them for you, but you'd probably post them online to humiliate me for getting a D in geology in 2017, so maybe not the best idea because I don't particularly like the thought of being doxxed myself, but oh fucking well. Anyway, the book was written and released to average to poor reviews. Some fangirls call it genius, but anyone with half a brain and who has read a book in the last year knows that this isn't exactly Game of Thrones or Lincoln and the Bardo. I mean, he also bragged that he hasn't read a book in 15 years, which, hate to break it to you, isn't something to brag about. Not reading for a long time just means that you haven't opened yourself up to new characters and experiences. I understand that some people just don't like reading or have a hard time with it because they're dyslexic um, or something along those lines, but this isn't one of those cases. Greg bragged that he had never read a book before, or at least hadn't read one in the last 15 years, and then decided to write a book to prove he could do it despite not having read books. <laughs> so I think he forgot what books are supposed to be like if you don't read one in 15 years. The best writers always read books, Greg. Okay. Greg hasn't exactly reacted well to his critics, accusing them of not having fully read the book and not knowing what the hell they're talking about. Well, guess what, Greg? I have a degree in a relevant field, I run my own review podcast, and I've read absolutely every single slovenly page of this absolute dumpster fire of a book, which I think makes me uniquely qualified to review it. Yes? Good. Okay, so I need to give you some forewarning here. This book contains a lot of really adult themes. I'm going to give you the trigger warning, but I really want to stress this one. It can get really bad in places. I know the last one got bad in places, but this one contains more violence besides holding a baby to your neck and watching it tear at your throat with its paper mache teeth. So here's the trigger warning for this one. Hello everyone, future Allison here with a warning for those of you who would like to read Stones to Abigail. There are spoilers in the rest of this episode, although I don't know why you'd care, considering that none of you are going to read this, right? I'm going through this pain so that you don't have to, so of course you're not going to read it, right? Thought so. So, this is also a good opportunity to issue a warning to any of you who are sensitive to violence, sexual assault, gun violence, bullying, abusive relationships, mentions of gore, or anything related to those topics. 
Viewer discretion is advised. And this is a good time to skip forward in the episode. If you prefer, go to the review portion at 1 minute and 55 oh, excuse me. If you prefer, please go to the review portion at 1 hour 55 minutes. I also want to make a statement really quick. Everything that I'm saying in this review is my opinion unless I explicitly state otherwise. Currently, the allegations against Anision are just that, allegations, and I am not presenting them as explicit fact. However, I also want to say that I believe all of the victims and their stories, and I think that if the allegations are in fact not just allegations, then in my opinion, there are important links to be made between Onision's subconscious, which shows in his writing, and his conscious choice in victims. But my opinions are just that, opinions, and I invite you to share your thoughts with me on my Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, and Facebook pages. No victim blaming will be tolerated on any of these sites, so don't even try it. Thank you for listening, and I will see you on the flip side, guys. Okay, so let's get into the plot summary of this dumpster fire. So the book starts out with the main character, James, waking up late because his alarm didn't go off. He reflects on the world around him from his very white bedroom to his stereotypical bleached blonde bimbo and jock classmates. James is late to his state history class with Mr. Hansen, who is annoyed with him and tells him that he wants to speak with him after class. Instead of speaking to Mr. Hansen, James bolts to art class so he can see his longtime crush, Abby, and moons over her for a while. Here, we are also introduced to his elderly art teacher, Mrs. Stanley, the football star and lover of fights, Jason, and a social outcast named Alex who once peed into a jar under his desk. No, I don't know why that's relevant despite it being brought up several times. Not just once, this has been brought up multiple times. So Mrs. Stanley announced that they are being paired up for an art project, and Abby decides that she'd really rather not work with Jason, her seat partner, and decides that she'd rather work with James. James is overjoyed by Abby's perceived favor, and they have a fun class period while they plan out their art project. After class, Abby gives him a note that says, nice one, nice having not been spelled with a C, it's spelled with an S, and they part ways. After the school day ends, we are introduced to James's best friend, Davis, who is a grade behind him. After they get on the bus, James is heartbroken to see Abby kiss her boyfriend, Seth. He wallows in self-pity all the way home. At dinner, we are introduced to James' overworked mother and promiscuous sister. At the dinner table, James figures out that the cryptic nice one note was actually just a cipher for Abby's phone number since they have the same area code. He calls her and is greeted by her alcoholic father, but they have a brief chat about their art project and James goes to bed feeling pretty accomplished. The next morning, Greg is approached by his history teacher, who wants to make him the teacher's assistant for his second period class. James, despite feeling... James, despite being vaguely interested, declines because art is the only class he has with Abby, which his teacher scorns. Afterwards, James races to art class, only to find out that Abby isn't there. He mopes for the rest of the day and into the next morning, where Davis cheers him up a little bit. His history class is interrupted by Jason the jock, who James decides to tell off for interrupting the class. 
Jason leaves the room but watches menacingly outside of the door for the rest of the class period, which is incredibly weird and also gives this kind of interesting air of foreboding for everybody. After James heads out for art class, Jason corners him and kicks the shit out of him, leading to both of them being suspended. James cries over this but is allowed to finish out the rest of the day before his second before his two-day suspension begins. After school, James sees Abby and Seth arguing and goes to break it up instead of getting on the bus with Davis. Seth sadistically taunts him with how James didn't fight back against Jason, and Abby breaks up with him on the spot. James walks Abby home and it starts to rain, revealing bruises that Abby has been covering up with makeup, to which James re reacts with a saccharine form of support? Abby embraces James and they part until the end of his suspension. That same night, though, James has a nightmare about Abby being harmed. In an attempt to support her further, he writes her an email telling her that he understands her pain and that he wants to help her through it. When I look into your eyes, I at times feel a level of sadness I have never felt, as if we, despite barely knowing each other, have been apart for far too long. <laughs> when I talk to you, it's like I'm listening to a voice I've ached for, yet haven't heard in a lifetime. Every other experience I have with you seems familiar, but at the same time, it hurts. Like you would feel if you had begged for something and only received it when you had already given up hope. These feelings are all so strange and evolving at a rate that scares me as they are for someone I am only just now truly getting to know. Even with my brief presence in your life, I've picked up on so much suffering and almost feel powerless to create any change. There are so many wounds, so many scars, so many... I so much I only know enough about to fear. I'm trying to understand. Abby, you have more pain in your life than I can imagine. I hear it in your voice, I see it in your eyes, and in the way you move. I just want to see you smile without there being an ocean wall of tears behind your eyes. I want to hear everything you have to say. I want to find a way to heal the damage done until you can forget it ever existed. <sighs> When his suspension lifts, James returns to school only to find that Mr. Hansen is favoring him more than usual. When he gets to our class, he discovers that Abby is not there, but that she has left a note under their art project. Abby's message tells him to go to the church, which is a common makeout spot in town. James ditches class to meet up with Abby, who insists that she's not a broken thing for her to save. Abby admits that she has been violated in ways that he cannot imagine and that her father is abusive. She and James embrace, and James tells her everything that she's ever wanted to hear. How wonderful. That night at the dinner table, James's mother introduces him and his sister Lisa to her new boyfriend Rick, who neither of the kids have ever heard of. Uh, Lisa makes a jab at James about him dating that, quote, messed up emo chick, unquote. James is angry about this and slut shames his sister before excusing himself from the table. The next morning, James is accosted by Mr. Hansen, who asks him to go see the guidance counselor, Miss Robertson. Count how many times I accidentally say Mrs. Robinson. I'll leave them all in, I promise. <laughs> Mrs. Robertson is introduced to the reader by aggressively throwing condoms at students and making a statement about abstinence, and then sits James down. She expresses an unprofessional attitude towards Jason and then interrogates James on why he turned down Mr. Hansen's offer to be his TA. The, she, uh, Mrs. Robertson correctly deduces that James wants to stay in, in art class because of a girl, but gets very serious and unhappy when she finds out that he has a crush on Abby. 
She tries to convince James to steer clear of Abby because she could screw up his future. Despite this, she rearranges his schedule so that they can have gym class together. You know, like you do. When James returns to class, he discovers that Abby has gone through his backpack. James doesn't mind this blatant breach of trust and remarks that we already carry so much emotional weight, why add to the physical weight than to the burdens we carry? That was very much a Strange Aeons reference. I've got to at least call it out when I rip people off. Afterwards, James tells Abby that he's switching classes and he says goodbye to Mrs. Stanley, who calls him the F word. Afterwards, James and Abby attend gym class with Mr. Mack, who seems to be a pretty stand-up guy by all accounts and allows James to borrow a gym uniform. Mr. Mack is revealed to be Jason's uncle, but he holds no ill will towards James. They play dodgeball and James wins it for his team. After class ends, Abby asks James to call her after school and gives him a kiss on the cheek. He just about creams himself with self-aggrandization. The next week, James finds his mom's boyfriend sitting in his kitchen. Rick tells him that he wants his mother to move in with him, which means that James would have to switch schools and be away from Abby. James is devastated, although his mother assures him that they will figure something out. James leaves to mope while his sister cries hysterically in the background. Insert obligatory Kai is crying joke here. Mrs. Robertson stops in to check on James and notices that he's upset and implies that it better not be Abby who is making him feel this way. James is annoyed that she seems to keep butting into their relationship. After school, James tells Abby that his mom is moving, but that he won't leave her behind. That night, when they're on the phone, Abby mentions that James pays no attention to the point of outright ignoring any female human in his classes. He responds that this abject rudeness to other women is to make her feel secure in their relationship so that she would never be able to doubt him. It's so very clear to me right now that Greg has never been in a healthy, stable relationship in his life if this is his version of anything romantic. Sometime later, I'm not actually sure how long, I know it's been more than a week, James gets off the bus at school and hears a popping sound that he recognizes as gunshots. The bus driver ushers them all back on the bus to get the kids out of the parking lot, but but promptly crashes the bus into another bus. James hears someone scream Seth and immediately realizes that Abby's ex-boyfriend is shooting up the school. Fearing for Abby's life, James gets off of the bus and rollerblades back into the school. As soon as he gets in, he sees bodies and blood on the floor. The coagulating blood ends up gumming up his skates and forcing him to remove them. He runs towards the gunshots and finds Seth threatening Mrs. Stanley, the art teacher. Instead of trying to de-escalate the situation, Mrs. Stanley is antagonizing Seth because that's a great idea. Antagonize the school shooter. Seth is dressed from head to toe in white, which I do wonder if Greg was trying to write this so that James and Seth were kind of mirroring each other because of the all-white thing. Anyway, James just stares as Seth goes to shoot Mrs. Stanley and gets pummeled by Jason, the jock who also fucked James up. Hmm. Uh, anyway, James walks through broken glass to find Abby cowering in a classroom. They hug and then reunite with James's mom, who allows... Abby to stay with them. That night, James and Abby sleep together in his bed. Several weeks later, their school reopens and they resume classes as usual. They learn that Seth's killed 52 people, 52, and wounded four, making this the deadliest school shooting literally ever. (laughs) Trust me, I have a lot to say about this little tidbit later. 
There's a school assembly in which the kids video call with Mr. Mack, who has survived the shooting by the skin of his teeth. After this, a White, a White House aide reveals that the president will be paying a visit to their school. Several days later, James and Abby meet at the church and have their first kiss. Aww. Afterwards, he walks Abby back to her father's house, where her father threatens and demeans her in front of James. After James stands up for Abby, her father hits him with a beer bottle and causes lacerations. Police immediately arrest Abby's dad, and the officers allow her to return home with James. They get into bed together, and Abby cries again. She cries so fucking much, I cut out so many instances of Abby fucking crying. <laughs> the next day, Davis is acting kind of snooty to James. James attempts, James attempts to cheer him up a little, but Davis is not responsive to this and shuts down. James shrugs it off and heads to school with Abby. When they get to school, they learn that the president is there. Mr. Hansen begins to fangirl. Though the original statement that the president made was that he was going to talk to every person in the school, he only answers James's question and then leaves the room after prom promising a budget shift. James meets up with Abby again, and she tells him that Jason grabbed her ass in art class. James does not immediately move to beat Jason up, which I kind of found shocking, but we'll get to it later. That night at dinner, James's mom announces that they're officially moving, but because Greg only has a year and a half left, they're, they're not going to make him go with them. His mom gives him their condominium and takes his sister with her. Sometime later, Mrs. Robertson calls James into her office to check in on him or otherwise try to butt, in, butt into his relationship with Abby. She continues to imply that Abby isn't worth the trouble, interrogates him on his mental health, and then sends him on his way. Later in the day, Abby asks him whether he'd spoken to Mrs. Robertson, and he and she rebuffs his questions about it. After dinner, Abby asks him to have a conversation with her while she's naked in the shower. You know, like you do. And like Kai apparently thought was appropriate with an underage girl. Hashtag no tea, no shade. They start talking, and Abby seems kind of concerned for James's reaction, and then decides to burst out of the shower completely naked to, so to show James all of the self-harm scars on her body. Then James kisses her scars, and it's just so very gross. Why she needed to be naked to do this, I have no idea, but I have this- but I have three words for this whole scene. Fetidization of trauma. I'll come back to that one, kids. Anyway, his mother comes home before they can do the nasty, and then- but they see each other naked for the first time! Ew! Ew, 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 I'm an adult reading about kids stripping. I feel so gross. <laughs> this is so gross. Um, J the next morning, James finishes helping his mom pack to move in with Rick. Davis comes over to help them move, and he and James make up. James has a kind of sociopathic reaction to his sister's pain and learns that his sister had feelings for someone who died in the shooting, but this bit of character depth for Lisa is completely skipped over. James and Abby drive Davis home, and then they go stargazing. Aww. Such a good, healthy, non-codependent relationship where they can just go stargazing. It's so great. Just before Christmas, fucking hell, the fucking pacing of this, guys, you really have no idea. It's so painful for me. Abby slips a note into Jimmy Boy's pocket, which Mr. Hansen attempts to take. James circumvents this by going to the bathroom and reading the note, which details Abby's full history of abuse and why Mrs. Robertson hates her. Basically, Abby was raped and got pregnant, and then Seth found out and abused her into a miscarriage. 
I'm not laughing at that because it's funny. I'm laughing at that because I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> just saying. Just saying I'm uncomfortable here. And then when she went for Miss... Then when she went to Mrs. Robertson for help, Robertson didn't believe that the miscarriage had been an accident. James decides that after reading this harrowing story that illustrates why believing women is important, the appropriate way to handle this situation is to go to Abby's first period class, ignoring a student with PTSD from the shooting in the process, and begins a vigorous makeout session in front of her teacher and the entire class. Chalk that up to yet another instance of fetidization of trauma. <sighs> Mr. Hansen, after this somehow, decides that James shouldn't be suspended for this completely inappropriate behavior because Jason called out- because James called out Jason that one time. Yeah, now- it, now Mr. Hansen really owes James for- James protecting the classroom from- from Jason that one time. Uh, this is, makes no sense, guys. This is so fucking meaningless. James and Abby end up skipping the rest of the school day and going back to James's house. When they get there, they spend the entirety of the day fucking. Because that's what you do when your girlfriend has just expressed to you that she was raped, you inconsiderate fucker! A week later, they go back to school and are greeted with new security measures like a security guard and a metal detector. Jason gropes Abby again, and this time James is really sick of it and goes to Mrs. Robertson, who doesn't believe that it happened because Abby was the victim. So, in true Alpha Chad fashion, James decides to beat up Jason. James takes on Jason and a couple other jocks. In the end, all of them are on the ground groaning and or bleeding. James and Jason end up going to the principal's office, and out of sheer embarrassment, Jason refuses to incriminate James, who got, who gets off scot-free for this assault. He reaches a mutual understanding with Jason, who realizes that his actions towards Abby are in fact wrong. They part ways, and Abby and James go home to fuck some more because, of course... That's what'll happen if you let two horny high school juniors live alone together. That made no sense. It doesn't make sense. James, Abby, and Davis all ditch class together. They fuck around in the park for a while and then drive over a bridge when a man commits suicide. James, um, excuse me, Davis jumps out of the car to save the guy but is killed by oncoming traffic. James pulls Davis's body off of the road and the police arrive. Instead of the police informing Davis's mother, you know... Like, it's their fucking job to do. James tells Davis's mom, who blames him for the death instantly. Classy. Blame a 17-year-old for something that was out of his control. Davis's funeral comes the next week, and during her eulogy, Davis's mother publicly apologizes to, for assuming that James was responsible for Davis's death. They embrace, and James cries, and Abby holds him. The next week, James returns to school, unable to miss any more days. Mr. Hansen and Mr. Robertson ask James to be school president, which James declines out of straight-up disinterest. Mr. Mack, the gym teacher, is finally cleared for work and returns to school. Presumably angry at James's reticence to be school president, Miss Robertson accuses Abby of being, uh, of being complicit in the school shooting in front of the entire school during passing time, yelling at James that she had quote-unquote warned him. Police officers clear Abby of any wrongdoing fairly quickly after that, but the student body heard enough. That night, Abby has a breakdown because she once wrote a letter to Seth that said she just wanted everyone to disappear. Because, yeah, that totally means she told him to shoot 50 people dead. Sure. In a very dickish, sociopathic move by James, while his girlfriend is hysterically crying, he storms away to take a shower instead of telling her that she wasn't responsible for what happened. 
Eventually, only after Abby has had enough time to endure vast swirls of doubt concerning her relationship with her boyfriend, which is the only stable relationship that she has, he comes back to comfort her like a hero. Because that's not a systematic abuse tactic at all. Oh, and then they fuck some more. Hi again, fetidization of trauma. How are ya? Uh, the next day, some asshole throws paint on Abby and tries to spit on her. The principal is pissed because the paint got on the new carpet that the president just paid for and lets them off scot-free. Afterwards, he angrily clears Abby of blame over the intercom and then calls Mrs. Robertson into his office, presumably to fire her. Mr. Hansen is also in favor of her dismissal, basically calling her a judgmental, manipulative bitch. Abby and James have a good rest of their day and go home on the bus, probably to fuck. Uh, the next morning, James hangs up Abby's paint-splattered shirt like art because he's turning her paint into something beautiful. Hashtag deep. Then they get the news that their school has burned down. The high school, fed up with the tragedy at this point, I guess, just decides to close the school for the rest of the year and give everyone passing grades. Mind you, this is probably still January or February. I'll come back to this, don't worry. Eventually, James and Abby walk, it, walk to the remains of their school where they meet Jason, who is at football practice. Jason informs them that the guidance counselor set fire to the school and is now in prison for it. Instead of having anything resembling a reasonable conclusion, James just smirks and says, Well, I guess I'm not running for school president. And that's the end of this fucking terrible book! This review's not done yet, though. Not by a long shot. We are already at 46 minutes of recording, people. This is gonna be a long one. Holy fuck. Okay, so I think it's time we move to the forgivable choices. But just so you know, this is gonna be another one of those really short segments on the forgivable choices. This isn't just one of those things that you can't find that much forgivable in. It's kind of like the last movie review that we did, where there are so many things wrong with this that there's not much good about it. Next week, I've got a much funnier review coming up, so this section will be longer again, And but although the episode altogether should be much shorter. Um, so just hang on for next week's, guys. You're still getting one on March 4th, I promise. So with that said, here's what I've got to say about the plot. Bashoom! The Forgivable Choices So, the plot line for this is fairly simple. It never seems to take too many unexpected twists or turns. I think the most unexpected twist was probably Davis's death, either that or maybe the school shooting, but otherwise, not really too many twists and turns. Personally, that's not my cup of tea, but not everyone likes a Game of Thrones style plot twist like I do, and that's totally fine. I'll count it as a B- for effort. So... Do with that what you will. Another thing about the plot, and I'm going to say this very sparingly as both Strange Aeons and Crimson Rogue have covered this, but the book feels fairly authentic. It's got that same 13 Reasons Why vibe to it that a lot of people understand and gravitate towards. It feels like something that I have felt before and seen before in places which I think is more because of the setting and not because of anything that Greg is doing intentionally. Um, beyond that, I think, I don't, I didn't mind Jason and James's makeup scene. 
Besides the fact that James has to make the jock see the light, I appreciate that Jason learned something about himself and decided to make amends. It's the one scene of true character building beyond the belly aching, and it was a welcome relief. There are very few characters altogether that I managed to truly like about this novel. Otherwise, most everyone else was made out to be your average high school asshole. I enjoyed Mr. Mack, the gym teacher, based solely on his apparent bravery, which was shown to us, not told, and that is very much a sin. And his kindness towards what's to, and I also liked him for his kindness towards what looks to be most people in the school. In all honesty, he was a pretty stand-up dude, and he was the only character that I could stand for longer than a page or two. This goes for Mr. Hansen too, but I'm a sucker for teachers who encourage kids to be the best they can be, even if they have to use some tough love. I'm a born educator, okay? <laughs> this is what I want to do with my life. The other character who I thought was decent enough was Jason, actually. Um, he seemed to be the only character at the end of the novel who hadn't remained completely static, including the main two characters, mind you. Um, we know that he's violent and enjoys getting into fights, but other than that, but after James knocks him down a peg, he seems to get calmer and not quite as douchey. It's the one small bit of character development that personally I felt that I saw in the entire book. Just because you learn something new about a character does not mean that they have changed. It just means that your perception of them has changed. An example of when a character actually changes is Aragon. Book 1 Aragon made much, much different decisions than Book 4 Aragon ever would have done. Jason did appear to be less angry than he was previously, and his heroism did inflate his ego, which was checked and he mellowed out. That's growth. And he's the only character I see do this. The NPC jock that you're supposed to hate is the only person who changes for the better. How thrilling. There were a couple turns of phrase that I didn't mind. It had competence, sentence structure and formatting. Um, one of them being, I welcomed the silence like a warm blanket on a cold night, which I know Crimson Rogue called out. It's a decent metaphor, if not completely overdone and cliche. The sentence structure isn't anything special. It's just a decent metaphor, which I was kind of surprised that he used a decent metaphor. Um, actually, the second one is also a decent metaphor. Uh, quote, I would be more optimistic, but I find doing so would be like walking into a room with no windows and turning out the light. While this one is similarly cringy and simplistic, it's another very blasé example of metaphor. I don't know why these are the only lines that didn't apparently scar my retinas for life. But beyond those couple of quotes, I don't really have a lot more to say. Those were the only good spots I could find in this book. So, without further ado, let's get into what we've all been waiting for, the unforgivable choices. This is unforgivable. Okay, so the unforgivable choices. I'm going to have to break this down into several organized points so that I'm not ranting and raving about random things in random places. So I'm going to start with formatting. <sighs> formatting is something that a lot of writers use to help tell their stories is to use different fonts and formats. Generally speaking, you should always keep your type small 
or small-ish at about an 11 or 12. That's the industry standard. Greg doesn't do this at all. Instead of using a decent font size, here the book font, at least in my copy, has been cranked up to a 14 at least. Now I get it if this book was written for people under the age of 12 because it can really help young readers to see something in larger print so they can more easily make out what the letters are saying. However, this is clearly not the case as Greg listed the novel as a contemporary romance novel and not teen fiction. Although originally it was labeled as a coming-of-age novel, which very much is a genre that teens tend to gravitate towards because it's relatable. Just something to think about there. I hope this was not marketed towards teens because the, the, the sex is quite described in places, and I don't think that's appropriate. Even I, I know that one of the teen novels that I used to read called House of Night, if you haven't read them, they're actually pretty, quite good. I've reread them recently. They're a little cringy, but I like them a lot. And um, the third book, um, an, a, an adult seduces a teenager, but it's not explained at all. We just cut scene. And that's how this kind of thing should be done. Anyway, while that's a reason for speculation, there is a reason that he most definitely increased his font size on purpose. Greg decided while writing his book to artificially inflate his page count, which is something that I hate when authors do. I know this because in multiple places he has left the font in the original format that it was written in, which is definitely a font two points down from the original, which in my opinion looks much less horrible and certainly would have meant a much less awful reading experience. Not only did he increase his page count with the font, he also increased the page count with putting spaces in between his paragraphs. Because one of the things with his formatting is that he writes in block text and does not indent so that you know that there's a new a new paragraph. So in order to make it look like there are separate paragraphs, he had to insert a space between every paragraph, which I don't know why you would do that. It is so much easier and it looks so much better just to indent. That's the industry standard. It's what I prefer to do. It's what most people prefer to do. It's all very not fun to read, honestly. Okay, I did a few experiments, and judging from the results I got and the results, I asked for two members of my writing group who have never heard about this to take a look and put it in what they would normally use for their formatting. And we, I came up with, you know, some slightly different results that negatively impacted his page count. So, altogether, the median way to format, doing what he did, basically would push you up 70 pages, which is the, which would push the book back well into novella territory. But then again, I suppose that anything small and feminine like a novella is something that Greg would want to be involved with. However, when you inflate your page count like that, your story absolutely suffers. Your chapters feel longer, but they have so much less substance. Something that consistently makes me incredibly frustrated with this is that had he formatted it correctly, I could not have accused him of this. If he had kept his font a little smaller, put it in 1.5 to double spacing, and indented, it probably would have led to a longer page count than what he already had, and would have looked nice enough on the page. I wouldn't have been able to say anything about this, but because he increased the font so much, and in places you can still see where it was originally 12-point font, he bumped up his page count. 
And that's something that I cannot stand when authors do. And now instead of having a nice looking page, we have all of these jarring stops. Now, if you don't know what I mean, let me explain the full stop to you. It's a writing tool that we use in order to make the reader pause the eye so that the full weight of the sentence can sink in a little bit. Many of times in fiction, that full stop is the end of a chapter or ending a paragraph abruptly and starting again further down. Greg full stops at the end of every single paragraph and hardly ever breaks away from his long blocks of text to give us a full quote. We never, ever, ever get away from these full stops, even in portions of the story that are dialogue heavy. This leads to a lot of awkward clashes of dialogue because you're never quite sure who's speaking. The brick wall of text is jarring, incredibly choppy, and just does not tell, like Crimson Rogue said, a well-flowing narrative. It's actually hideous to read. So let me kind of give you an example here of a shorter paragraph. Not if you drop Mrs. St- Stanley. She pushed me back playfully saying jealous. By the way, that's two different speakers. That's two different speakers. Full stop. The boys slid off to dress in the locker room and the girls did the same. I didn't have gym clothes with me yet, so I just sat down at the bleachers and waited for everyone else to get done putting on their uniforms. Full stop. A deep voice sounded off. What are you doing here, kid? Every single time, it's a full stop instead of going straight into what should be actively happening. That is incredibly annoying as a writer. Uh, Speaking of narrative, we need to talk about word choice and the plot choices. Uh, I'm going to go with word choice and language first and get it out of the way. Now, in and of itself, obviously, language is an incredibly important tool in a story. If you need an example of that, I encourage you to read A Clockwork Orange by Anthony Burgess. Anthony Burgess decided not to use straight-up normal English when he wrote it. He decided to use NADSAT, a complicated riff off of Cockney that the main character and his gang use. It creates this strange disconnect between your reader and the character by using language like this, distancing both the main character and the reader from the offensive occurrences in the story, which is mainly to make the protagonist more likable. And it works. It legitimately works. It's it's actually one of my favorite novels because of what it does with language in order to make it work. And to make the protagonist likable, even though the protagonist is really more of an antagonist and really should be in prison for the rest of his life for what he's done. Um, Greg makes no discernible language choices to help you see the story through a different lens. What he does try to do is come off particularly loquacious. I'm guilty of this myself, as I'm sure you've heard. You did, you have just listened to like six hours worth of me talking. Um, although I assure you that I'm equally as eloquently spoken in real life as I am on the internet. Although perhaps Greg is a tad less polished than I am, he continuously speaks as if he is God. He is constantly looking down at his nose at everyone and using big words and antiquated language. Greg, do you know when the last time that I heard anybody call a group of people creatures was when I was in early contemporary literature class? The author called people creatures because they were talking about slaves. Just saying, it's what it reminded me of. It really got under my skin a little bit. Clearly, he views the other students as pests in his in his dominion. Otherwise, why would he view them as, quote, animals in a zoo? 
if he didn't feel like he himself was morally and intellectually superior to everyone around him. This whole book feels like he's talking down to you, which is something that I personally just can't stand. I hate it when people talk down to me or talk to me like I'm stupid. It's so infuriating to me. He constantly uses words that feel out of place in a high school environment. Um, I was a, I was a high-speed English student. I used a lot of language that my peers didn't understand. I've been having people ask me for definitions from wor- for words in normal conversation all the time. And I didn't talk like this. I was not this antiquated. If I, a high-speed English scholar, was not talking like this, then what gives Greg the right to speak like this? He sounds inc- he he just sounds completely out of place. You can tell that this is the narrative of a 30-year-old man and not the narrative of a teenager. It takes you out of the moment when you hear him speak like this. For a character shown not to care about school, Greg goes out of his way to make himself seem highly educated and smarter than everyone around him. Which, again, I cannot stand. Beyond that, Greg uses run-on sentences as if it were a passing fad. Every sentence of this, every sentence of his book is incredibly wordy. Overly wordy, in fact. Now, I have to admit that I also do this, but I know my tendencies to, to be overly wordy, and I clean it up every time I do a draft. That's why I don't put out my work that often, because I'm a perfectionist, and I want to make sure that I only include the work that I'm proud to put out. Despite Greg's year-long writing cycle, clearly he's not a perfectionist like I am and doesn't want to clean it up. And here's the other risk of being overtly wordy. When you do that, your reader can lose interest. If you think that they need to be led to the answers, then you need to lay better clues, not explain it to them. So, for example, in the book, he says that So, for example, instead of saying, I suppose that we both liked to think of our fathers in a way that made us feel like they would care from time to time, you could say, we liked to think that our fathers might care about us from time to time. That's ten words shorter and made the exact same point. You should always use the furthest words to get to your goal, the ones that are the most necessary, and, yes, the ones that sound best together. Quick poll. Which one of those two sentences actually sounded like something that a human being might say? Say nay if you think it's mine. Thanks, guys. And that's another point. Greg uses his flowery words to make his sentences sound better, but he does a piss-poor job of it. When you add flowery words to a sentence with messy structure and unclear motivations, it ends up sounding insincere. When you say, thank you for making my life perfectly imperfect, we end up not caring because it's a sophomoric bit of saccharine edginess. i say that five times fast. On that note, Greg uses words that are just too much. For one, the characters scream way too often, which is the clearest ev- evidence that though Greg cites the dictionary very often, clearly he's not read one from cover to cover. I used to do that, actually. Uh, you learn so many new words that way. I highly recommend it if you're trying to be a if you're a vocabulary buff like I am. But anyway, screaming is not applicable to all forms of human vocalization. You should not scream in your work unless it warrants it. 
Personally, I'm a firm believer that you have to earn things like that. Your build-up to a scream has to earn that scream. There are different ways to earn it, but you need to earn it nonetheless. You can't just scream if you see a, a plate of cupcakes. You need to scream if you see a plate of cupcakes if you've been crawling through a desert for days and haven't had no food. <laughs> of course you'd scream then. If you just walk into a room and scream because you see cupcakes, it feels inauthentic. I mean, then again, I'd totally scream if I saw cupcakes, but that's beyond me. Bad example, but you get what I mean. So there are a bunch of different words to use in different situations for this. Here's a handful that I pulled out of the thesaurus. Hold on just a second. Here are just a couple more words that I found for scream in the, in the thesaurus. Blare, holler, howl, roar, screech, shout, shriek, squeal, wail, yell, brawl, bellow, caterwaul, jar, screak, shrill, voice, yip, yell, sing out, cry, whimper. So, you know what I mean? There's a lot that you can use. Scream is the absolutely most I personally believe that it is the most extreme word you can use in the situation. You can yell into the store without it being a scream. But anyway, anyway, I'm sure that this is already lengthy as fuck. So let's go get on to the plot problems, which you've all been waiting for. First of all, never ever open with your character opening their eyes coming out of a deep sleep. It's completely overdone now, and it was completely overdone in 2014. Second, the opening line is... Well, it's something. Quote, I was sleeping until I met her, but when I woke up, I learned the meaning of imperfect imperfection. Unquote. It's vague, it's cliche, and it does absolutely nothing to intrigue or draw in a reader. That first sentence of a novel should always hook you around the, the navel and pull you in. But this does not do that. James and Abby's first interaction is painful. Beyond the crap dialogue, the scene is set up terribly. For one, they have art class in a trailer behind the school. That's an interesting choice, separating him and Abby from the rest of the crowd already. So much separation and isolation. Beyond that, the students and teacher are terribly set up. Mrs. Stanley is a homophobic bigot, and his classmates are all pretty gross. According to Greg, the thing about Alex peeing into a jar is true, but that doesn't mean that it needed to be in the story, because it wasn't important, so why mention it? If you'd wanted to keep it in, then you should have had Alex throw one of his piss jars at Seth in an attempt to stop him before he gets shot. Something like that. So something. I've heard it said that if you have a spoon in your scene, somebody better start eating soup with that, with that spoon. You know, you dig? Besides this, and I know that both Tia and Crimson both covered this, I do want to mention it because it's important. James and Abby's relationship feels incredibly forced. Seriously, it, it's kind of like Greg make, is making Barbie's kiss. <laughs> it's so bad. Uh, seriously, it's actually kind of like Greg is making his Barbie's kiss. It's so bad in places. Uh, she points him out specifically in that scene, in the first scene together, which makes James feel all bubbly inside, even though she's clearly never paid a sm any smidgen of attention to him at all in their time together. Besides that, despite 
James being so smitten with Abby, we never learn what she looks like. All we know is that she has a nice body, and we don't learn that until two-thirds of the way through. And that's ridiculous. Also, we don't know why he's so hyper-fixated on her at all, because besides her body, we don't know anything about her. For her to point him out in a crowd feels very contrived and made for TV. Like, this is something that I would watch on one of my mom's Hallmark Christmas movies. Easily. Uh, their art class project is to take two things that they love and to make them one whole thing. Cute! Pregnancy joke! Hey! Especially since they don't use condoms. Hey! <laughs> okay, here's a big, big plot hole that I don't- I've actually never heard anybody address. James has been crushing on Abby for a while, and he says that one of the things that he's really good at is reading people. However, somehow, he has never learned that Abby has been dating Seth. He liked her all this time, even thinking of her as, like, the sunshine of his day, and he doesn't know that she's with somebody. See, this seems incredibly wrong, because I know that I grew up slightly later. I didn't go to high school until 10 years after Greg did, but you stalk them. <laughs> when you like someone, you go on Facebook. Facebook didn't exist at the time, but... You go on Facebook, you go on MySpace, you go on whatever, and you stalk them to find out, you know, what they're about. That's what's been happening ever since the internet became accessible, and Greg was, did have access to the internet while he was in high school. You know what I mean? I, I just don't believe that he had no idea that Seth was her boyfriend. I don't believe that in the slightest. I think that that was just a little thing to get Greg to feel bad about himself, because he doesn't get the girl. Oh my god, it's so sad and edgy. <sighs> um, Abby giving James a puzzle to solve would have been an interesting move if you wanted her to be secretive and brooding. Maybe she only let people into her, into her inner circle if they could get through her puzzles. That would be a really cool character trait. Maybe she thought that it makes people put in effort to getting to know her. Whatever the reason, giving Abby this little character moment would have been much more interesting and would have given her a little bit more complexity. Also, I want to know how James actually figured that out. <laughs> how did he put it together? It's not like there were any context clues at dinner about ciphers. I don't understand how he put it together that the note was Abby's phone number. It's not explained at all. Okay, so, uh, moving on. Dear Mr. Hansen, If a student doesn't want to be a TA then you drop the subject. End of story. They don't want to be your pet project. I mean, James is a selfish cunt because I would have loved to be a TA and I never got asked to. Also, uh, Mr. Hansen ragging on someone's choice to become an artist in full hearing view of students who might have some real talent isn't great. James's only real talent is his mega plot armor. It's that moment felt really awful and made me dislike Mr. Hansen until he came back later. It was just not professional and I didn't appreciate it. Because I am an artist and I'm not making money of what I do, but I'm glad that I went to school for what I did. Alright, next, uh, Jason and Greg's fight. The first one, I should say, is ridiculous. Jason is standing outside the classroom looking menacing Jason standing outside the classroom looking menacing is creepy and he probably would have been dragged into the principal's office. 
on this note, the fact that all Greg did was try to push Jason away is BS. No one, I don't think, would have suspended him for that. Also, this makes the fight later on in the book seem really out of character, because Greg didn't seem like he really wanted to fight Jason. Greg wanted to fight Jason in the second one, but here it just felt like Greg didn't know what the fuck he was doing, and then he turns on badass mode later on and figures his shit out. You know? Not that he's had any training, he hasn't done, gone through like a Rocky montage or anything, so it just feels forced. Also, uh, Greg said that in real life, there was an earthquake while he was in the nurse's office. Sure, Jan. Sure, Jan. Abby and Seth's fight comes out of absolutely goddamn nowhere. It didn't need to happen. The pacing of this book is so hard to follow, guys. I I really can't stress this. And you don't get dates for everything, so it's even harder to catch up with the timeline. We don't have enough setup for their relationship at this point. This is the first and only time we ever talk to Seth, and all the scene makes him do is look like a psycho brat, as Chris Hansen would say. At no point do we understand why Abby ever dated Seth. All we know is that he thinks of her as his property, which is totally not psychotic at all. Uh, When Seth murders half the school later on, it becomes somewhat out of left field because up until this point, he wasn't very important, and we only saw him twice, and one one of those times he kissed Abby. It just wasn't set up very well. Abby's first reveal of her abuse is, well, that ain't cute, sis. Abuse isn't romantic. It's not something that should ever be portrayed as romantic. Somebody marked Abby's skin and that was wrong. So instead of telling Abby that he'll get her help, James tells her that she's pretty and saves her like a fucking damsel in distress. Like I said, the fetidization of trauma in this book is so gross, guys, and I'm going to get into a whole rant about this in a little bit, but Onision really drives home the fact that abuse is hot. It's so hot. I'm going to go fuck her right after she tells me that she's been raped. It's so hot. No, that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. Again, I'll get into this in a little bit. Don't worry. This is a rant. James has nightmares about uh, about Abby's abuse, uh, which just goes to show that he probably can't, in fact, handle it like she hopes he can. Um, the other thing is, you are having nightmares about her abuse. I get not wanting to ha- anything to happen to somebody that you love and care about, but this takes it beyond that. He's having nightmares about her abuse. He's not even in them. He's just imagining her getting abused. Um, and then he wakes up and he writes her a really fucking creepy email, which I read to you guys earlier in the plot synopsis. He just, he cannot handle it like she thinks he can. It affects him so much that it affects his subconscious. He's seen one bruise on her face and he's having nightmares on her behalf. That's such some, that's such white knighting bullshit. I can't even handle it. I'm sorry, but I don't believe that this immature boy is the right person to help a traumatized woman. This is something that Dominic Noble said in his Fifty Shades of Grey review. It's never your job to fix somebody. Your job is to help them while they fix themselves. Okay, I added that last part, but it's whatever. And then James tries to fix her anyway. His note is cringy. I wouldn't want to be sent that. I think I would have actually rather have my ovaries ripped out without anesthesia and fed to the human centipede rather than receive that email. 
if you need help, it's absolutely okay to lean on somebody. But to tell someone, like, what James sent Abby is something that almost fosters mutual codependency, which is a whole nother issue entirely. I say nope. Crossing the line, nope. Okay, their conversation behind the church is much the same, except Abby reveals even more tragic backstory at this point, and at this point, it's almost starting to get old. Abuse is not something ever to be taken lightly, but when it's mentioned so callously, it starts to lose its luster. The other problem is that he's saying everything that she's ever wanted to hear in her life. And that, my friends, if you know that, is a manipulation tactic. Telling someone everything that they want to hear just because you want them to be in a relationship with you isn't right. What are you going to do when she finally disagrees with you? Oh, wait, she won't because she can't. They never disagree in this book, ever. They never have a fight on anything, no debates. James is always right and damn anyone else who isn't in his tiny inner circle. Also, uh, James's scene with Mrs. Robertson is really awful. There is confidentiality that she doesn't quite breach, but she lets on that she has dirt on Abby right away. In this world where kids decide, where adults decide to ruin kids' relationships just because they don't think they're right for each other. And then she makes herself a hypocrite to let James and Abby have classes together, which is whiplash-inducing. Let me tell you, why, if you hate Abby, would you ever let one of your favorite students be around her? That's just lazy writing! and making things happen rather than letting them fall into place. You can absolutely be too controlling in your writing, and this is a great example of what that can do. Uh, Abby goes through James's bag, and the only thing that James says is this edgelord thing. Life's got enough burdens for us to carry. Why add physical weight? Why? 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 You know that's gonna get made fun of, dude! You know that it's gonna get made fun of! Come on! <laughs> Come on! And also, uh, one more thing. Nope, 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 nope. She invaded your privacy. Why aren't you upset, Mr. I'm a loner who looks at people as if they are animals? I don't understand the purpose beyond proving that James is super deep and metaphorical. <laughs> I, I just don't, I don't understand the point of that without, you know, talking about how deep and edgy he is. Dark and mysterious and smart, even though he's clearly very much not smart. Okay, moving on from that for a little bit, um, why would Greg's mom want to move in with someone that fast? Even if she and Rick had been dating a while, there's some serious problems here, and some incredibly selfish problems, to be honest. So, integrating a family with a new member is difficult enough in itself. For people of blended families, you know that it's difficult adding new siblings, it's difficult adding new uh, parents into the mix, step-parents and all that. And it's not something that should ever be done callously or quickly. It's a very difficult thing to do. The Patricks should have gone on trips with Rick and learned about each other. They should have spent time together, which we never got to see. These are children, Mrs. Patrick. They need comfort and safety in their mother and not having to switch schools abruptly just because you decided that you wanted to move in with your boyfriend. You have more responsibilities beyond this dude that you are seeing. That was actually kind of really, I, I, it made me quite angry because I have known people from 
blended families and you need to be able to integrate like that in order to have a stable home life. There was no integration here. Honestly, besides showing that James's mom is super selfish at this point since her kids aren't over 18, this scene had no weight on the plot at all. At all! Except to, of course, make Abby cry and make James awed by her show of loyalty, but because that's not super weird, this scene is full of a terrible message about how to integrate your families, and yet, and yet, it's, it's completely pointless. There's no point to it, guys. But I think we have to go ahead and tackle it. The school shooting scene. Besides being beyond... This is something that I've been wanting to talk about for a while, guys. I'm sorry. Besides the fact that the scene was beyond pointless, I want to point something out. Seth killed 52 people. That's more people that died than that died in the Parkland shooting in 2018 and Columbine combined. Actually, that's more than that's actually more than Virginia Tech and Columbine combined. I actually did the math on this and figured out that Seth killed almost five-sixths as many people that died in Sandy Hook and Virginia Tech combined. And if you added up the deaths from Sandy Hook, Columbine, and Stoneman Douglas, removing any deaths that took place off the property like Adam Lance's mother and the shooter's suicides, you have 56 people dead. Which, incredibly, is the same amount of people that were killed and injured by Seth. I hope you understand the gravity of the tragedy here. This, sh this school shooting killed almost more people than Stoneman Douglas, Sandy Hook, and Columbine combined. Combined. Comparatively, the only thing that could surpass it in a loss of life would be the Las Vegas shooting that killed 58, and more recently, the Orlando nightclub shooting. And, on top of it, all of these events were mourned for months, absolutely months, and in a lot of ways have scarred this country. This would have been an incredibly damaging thing, and we never get anything about it being damaging to the country and not just the people involved. Which makes no sense when you consider that Greg uses this to push an anti-gun message. Which I'm not going to get into. If you want to hear the anti-gun message, go to Crimson Rogue's channel. I don't want to get into it. And there's another thing that I think is really wrong with the school shooting scene. It's possible that this is an homage to the Columbine shooters. In the years after Columbine, there were numerous copycats all over the world. Greg would have been about 14 at the time of the shooting in 1999. And numerous copycats would have made headlines and would have had a profound effect on him and his schoolmates. As someone who lives within 300 miles of one of the bigger Columbine copycat shootings in the United States, it feels kind of personal to me. James's actions during the shooting also are stupid. Why would you take your shoes off? What that action said to me is that your dedication to Abby isn't enough to drive you. You're not going on adrenaline to save the person you love. You're going in to slay the dragon to rescue poor milady. He got glass in his feet from this. It's all pointless. He never had any problems walking. Why include this tidbit? I don't understand why he took his skates off or why he put them on to begin with. If you are adrenaline racing, you're not going to even think about it. You're going to sprint in, grab what you love, and get the fuck 
out. The whole, that whole thing is stupid. He should never have put his rollerblades on, ever. He should have been running full tilt if that was really his goal, if it was really adrenaline-based. He would not have thought about his skates. He would have left his backpack, left everything, sprinted in to find Abby. The glass in his feet wouldn't have even need to have been a thing. I don't understand why it was necessary to talk about his rollerblades here. It was just a very strange thing, especially since I know that Greg did not go through a school shooting. I actually looked it up. I was wondering, you know, is this something that was, you know, he did experience? But there were no shootings in Oregon or Washington State that matched these specifications during that time frame. Another thing that I don't understand about this scene is why Seth didn't find Abby first before James did. I mean, if the breakup was his trigger for the violence, why wouldn't he kill or kidnap Abby before anybody else, hold her at gunpoint? In that scenario, it makes sense why James would run towards Seth, but it doesn't make sense otherwise. Why would you be running for Seth if you don't know that he has your girlfriend? Oh, and James getting treated like a small hero for running into the building with an active shooter. Iconic in its Gary Stewness. <laughs> and then afterwards... Greg being allowed to host Abby in his house and have her sleep in his bed would have been okay. I know that uh, that a couple reviewers have said, oh, that's kind of weird, but I think it would have been fine if it had only been a couple of nights. I understand that they would have wanted comfort out of each other. I doubt that it would have been the time to do the nasty. But after that, parenting has to be a thing. Codependency is is not romance, and you have to extricate yourself from it all. You cannot only rely on each other forever, and that's what they do here. It's, she gets to stay for the entire time that the high school is closed, and Greg, James, excuse me, just lets her sleep in his bed and they hold each other all day and all night. That's not healthy. That's not healthy grieving. That's not healthy coping. That's not healthy anything. Honestly. And Needless to say, I don't like that. <sighs> okay, so there's another Columbine reference that I forgot to mention earlier. Um, because Seth also made bombs that would apparently explode like napalm that he was planning to use to kill more people. The Columbine shooters did that too, although most of the bombs didn't detonate. First, no. No. <laughs> Second, No. Crimson explains this in his review better than I can, but basically, napalm is an incendiary, not an explosive. Well, it's an explosive, but it's an incendiary explosive. Napalm is basically thickened gasoline, and it's meant to set things on fire very quickly, not to cause an explosion, per se. It's not the same as a bomb that's meant to cause a powerful pressure wave, which will kill you. Um, also, Jason punched Seth into a coma. If you wanted to add in something that would have affected the school, you should have mentioned that he woke up from his coma and was starting his trial. It would have been a really interesting trial, and I'm sure Abby probably would have been called to testify. It would have made for some really great drama. If you wanted to, if you wanted to add in something that would affect people, you should have had their reactions to the trial and the, up, and the upcoming incarceration. If you think about it, it would have created so much more tension had Greg just extended Seth's presence and made him more of a prominent character. Honestly, it could have had a vastly different effect and would have created some real emotion. Okay. The President's Visit Assembly is 
wrong. While I can't fault that the president decided to come to the school to visit with the kids, promising everyone equal time is bullshit. Even if the school is fairly small, it's still probably 150 people to give individual time to. The best thing that they could have done would have been to gather and have a meet and greet in the auditorium with the president, who could have offered some sage words of advice, given everybody a hug or a handshake, that kind of stuff, maybe called up a couple kids to answer questions. It would have made much more sense. Um, also, sewing the man in the ICU, Mr. Mack, who nearly died in a school shooting to a bunch of traumatized high schoolers, is that not problematic? If they wanted Mack to give a statement, they should have had his photo, like his school picture, up on the screen and read a letter from him. It probably would have been, honestly, more emotional and far less traumatizing for the kids who have just been through a school shooting. <laughs> if he wanted to tell the story of what Mack did when Seth came a-shooting, James and Abby could have watched from home like if he did like an interview on television or later that week. That would have provided another scene to make the shooting more impactful as well as to make the gun control message a little bit more impactful. Personally, I'm very pro-gun control, but this form of the message ain't it, sis. Sorry. Then um, James walks Abby home that night. The whole scene where... We get to meet Abby's abusive father is poorly paced and very choppy. Um, we finally meet Abby's dad, and he's obviously terrible, but he's the kind of terrible that I used to write about when I was 13. He's a horrendous person, but he's a horrendous person with no reason. We don't know why he hates his daughter. We don't know why, um, we don't know why he turned to alcohol. We don't know why he abuses anybody. This scene would have been so much better if it had been placed after Abby comes clean about the rest of her damage. This scene would have been so much more impactful if this was after the scene that either that Abby took her clothes off. I mean, not that it would have been that impactful anyway, but it would have been more impactful if it had happened here. There's also a great example of a deus ex machina in the form of an off-duty police officer <laughs> across the street watching the whole thing. We know... That he was watching, but why didn't the cop come break up the argument as soon as it started getting heated? I, I feel like cops are a little bit more reactionary than that, especially if they've got their canine partners with them. Um, it would have been something better if Abby's dad had thrown the bottle over the cop's shoulder. Otherwise, this whole scene is listless. Any decent police officer would have intervened much earlier. Also, the fact that they didn't take James to the hospital is kind of suspicious. A blow from a bottle to the side of the head of any sort would have definitely caused a concussion. <laughs> That's a hospital visit or at least a medical evaluation. Just saying. You should probably go get a CT scan just to make sure that your brains didn't get scrambled. Alright. The president's actual visit is pointless. Clearly, the president is supposed to be this cool, edgy guy just like James. He comes in, he calls James out by name, which is also incredibly stupid, just because he's the main character. James didn't have any leg to stand on here. He didn't do anything. He got some glass in his feet that didn't make him a hero. And his question that he asked the president is so simplistic. He asked what people think of him in the media. Greg clearly doesn't believe the horseshit that he wrote anyway, because he certainly doesn't live by the president's quote which I'm not going to read to you because it's lengthy as fuck and stupid. But most reviewers have done it. I'm not going to do it here. And then the president just leaves without talking to anybody else. 
he just fucks off to who knows fucking where. We never see her, we never hear about him again. And at the end of the scene, all I could ask was, what was the point? And then Miss Robin, uh, Miss Robinson, Miss Robertson, keeps butting into James's relationship, which just seems so weirdly wrong. I genuinely don't understand why it was necessary to have her be so mean and against Abby. It just is so unnecessary. She keeps asking about James's actions and tuts disapprovingly whenever he tells her as if James trying to save his girlfriend's life in a school shooting was a terrible move to make. I'm not saying that it wasn't stupid, but it's an understandable action that he took because he was scared for his loved one. It's honestly so awful to read about. She stops caring about James's mental health the second that he and Abby, she hears that he and Abby are still dating. I mean, her hatred of Abby is still beyond ridiculous, especially considering that she is a 17-year-old girl and who does not have a grasp on how to live as a responsible adult yet. But Greg really knows... Not that Greg really knows how to be an actual fucking adult either, but I digress. Clearly, Miss Robertson has no interest in helping any of these traumatized kids. She only has an interest in making Abby the bad guy and responsible for what happened. It's so horrible, and the fact that she's an authority figure makes me really think about Greg's opinions of adult female authority, because so far, two female characters of authority are not what they should be. I'll put it that way. And then Abby decides that she wants to show off her self-harm scars. Sure, it takes a lot of trust in order to show somebody that, but certainly you don't but you don't need to get in the shower and have a conversation that burst out completely naked to show off the scars. Self-harm is incredibly damaging for a lot of young women and men in a lot of ways, and this just it's exploitative. Greg exploits her nubile, underage body to give James the chance to oogle at an underage girl's emotional pain personified. And afterwards, he chooses to make subjective comments about how she looks naked, and honestly, it's unbelievably gross and sad. I don't think I have no reason to go in on this, except for making trauma a fetish thing, which I, I'm still, I promise, I'm gonna really get into it later. And then, uh, Davis comes around to help the Patricks move, he's weird around Abby. Then, all of a sudden, it's all right between all of them. It's as if nothing ever happened. It's bizarre. I don't understand. There's never a reason for Davis's prior rudeness to Abby. He never apologizes. They never settle it. All of a sudden, it's just all right again. <laughs> Bitch, in what world? No way in hell you come off as that rude to someone with no reason. And they don't, and they just automatically welcome you into the fold. If you have issues with someone, you have to communicate these issues because it's the worst if you don't. And then you still have issues afterward. Um, also, shortly after the infamous shower incident, Abby decides to eat, reveal all to James. Even though she's done that already. <laughs> it would have been so much better if she wanted to bear her heart to James. To have them have a scene before she showers where she tells him everything. And then if he wanted to keep the dramatic self-harm scar reveal, she could have showed him after he already knew everything. Just as another way for her to say, are you sure you want to stay? Are you sure you want to stay? And him to say yes. That would have been more powerful, in my opinion. Um, I, I don't know about how, <laughs> you know, romantic it is, but it would have been more powerful that way. 
It gives her more agency and a, a little bit of depth. This scene makes very little sense in context, especially since James thought it would be appropriate to go make out with his girlfriend in the middle of class. Literally, I don't understand this decision at all. And uh, then he, of course, uses his public indiscretion later to finally charm the panties off of Abby. <laughs> so, so cute. He uses this makeout session and acceptance of her trauma to get in her pants, basically. That's the whole point of this scene, is to make sure that they have sex. And then they fuck all Christmas break, presumably without condoms or any kind of protection. So who knows if Abby's pregnant or not? I'm sure Greg would have loved for her to get pregnant so that he had her, uh, so that he could own her more than usual. James. James. <laughs> Greg is James and James is Greg. Except James is better than Greg. God, it's, it, this is all so exploitative, guys. It's, it's kind of sickening to read about. Um, also, you'd think with her kind of sexual trauma that maybe she might be a bit more hesitant to have sex. Um, I know with some women that they don't have any trauma regarding sex after being assaulted, but the fact that her rape is used to make him look like a hero, and then they don't follow through on saying how her being raped has affected her life, is really wrong. Yes, it meant that other people were unkind to her, but people can be unkind to you no matter what. People can hurt you no matter who they are. It doesn't express her inner turmoil after being violated. We focus so much on her victimhood that she forgets she's supposed to be a survivor, a strong woman who's moved past her issues or at least is working on them. Because that's the hardest thing that she will ever do is to get past something like that. Instead, Abby's sexuality is being exploited for her boyfriend's physical gain, and that's so objectively wrong. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Mrs. Robertson can go deep through a cactus. She believed that Abby had been raped before and did try to give her resources on pregnancy. So why did she think that she had lied about Jason? Just because she was pissed that... Abby had miscarried or chosen to miscarry. Everything about this is just so backwards. She, she's an advocate for children. She shouldn't fucking be saying because it's so-and-so, I'm not going to do anything about it. That's wrong and it's awful. And because of it, I almost understand why James decided to beat Jason up. I kind of get it. I almost cheered him on. A almost, mind you. Almost. And then he beats up four guys instead of one. It would have just been nice to have it just Jason on James. It would have been vastly more believable and would have shown some character growth. James is willing to face a fear of his to save his woman. But now J James just gets to look like a huge badass and somehow I still don't care. It's all ridiculous and Mrs. Robertson can go deep throat a cactus like I said. Davis is deaf. Okay, I wanted to avoid talking about this for as long as possible, but we need to discuss it. Davis's death is tragic but pointless. Davis's character is incredibly irritating. It was so irritating, in fact, that I found myself skimming his pages because, damn, is that some shitty dialogue, man. After you read it once or twice, you just get, you, your eyes roll back into your head. I don't know if it's the words that are being said or what exactly it is, but it's cringe-inducing. Again, Greg, you can't get mad at me for critiquing him because Davis is separate from your friend. You separated Davis from your friend when you called this novel fiction instead of nonfiction. And now I'm going to get into Davis's shitty moves. 
first jumping onto a highway is just a terrible idea. The dude who Davis was trying to save was basically already dead, and this scene is incredibly weird, too, on top of it. It's awkwardly written because Greg has no skill at figuring out what symbols mean. An ellipsis is not a dash, my dude. A dash is a hard, sudden stop while an ellipsis lingers, kind of like the end of Bohemian Rhapsody. Suddenly, James is holding a corpse instead of Davis still being alive, and it's so choppy and so stupid and it's so tragic, and you're just like, what the fuck is going- I, I've read it a dozen times and I don't understand what happens in this scene. I understand his- and then I under- and then when they tell his mom, which, like I mentioned earlier, is totally not something that a police officer should have done instead of a couple of high school kids. Davis's mother's reaction to his death is understandable, but I definitely think that apologizing to James in a speech that was supposedly meant for her dead son is abominable. She was mourning her kid, not her cat! Like- you go to you were at your son's funeral and you chose to instead of talking about the great things that your kid did that your son was known for with making people smile and all that you choose to focus on his best friend and saying sorry in your eulogy that's so wrong it's so messed up she should have come to him afterward and apologized or beforehand of the wig not during his eulogy but no, if somebody wrongs James, they have to publicly apologize for it instead of apologizing privately because it was, in fact, a private dispute. It feels wrong, and again, it's actually really exploitative. In short terms, Greg exploited Davis's mother's pain for his own gain as everyone tells James that he's a great person. It's, it's gross, honestly. A kid dying in this way isn't cute. It's heartbreaking. My senior year, I had a class. I had a classmate die in a rollover crash, and it absolutely devastated my whole community, including me. Even though I didn't even know them that well, it's heartless to take away from the tragedy by focusing on yourself. Greg just wanted an apology for being yelled at. Fuck you, Greg. I guess you got your apology, didn't you? Sorry, that one get gets to me a little bit. <laughs> um. Also, the poor cops in this town are now just constantly dealing with James's bullshit. I, I really wonder if Greg will write another book where the main character has the police called on him 19 times. I'd love to tear it to shreds if you do write a book like that, Greg. I really did, uh, despite my anger towards, you know, what I just said about <laughs> Davis's mother, this was actually a lot of fun to just rip to shreds because there's so much. And I cut out so much from my script that I could have gone into and I chose not to because I felt like it was disrespectful. But, you know, it is what it is, man. I had a lot of material for this. Okay, so apparently the climax of this book is Mrs. Robertson deciding to pin the school shooting on Abby for no reason other than the fact that she dislikes Abby's views on abortion. I'm sorry, but boo fucking who? It doesn't even follow that Abby would be involved with the shooting. Seth wasn't her boyfriend at the time. How could she have been in any way responsible for it? That's ridiculous. And then broadcasting it across the school is just straight up cruel. And she doesn't inform the student body that she... And then Mrs. Robertson doesn't inform the student body that she was wrong. I agree with one thing in this book and one thing only. It was right to fire her. But anyway, this just compacts Abby's trauma. Why? Why was it necessary to pour, pile more on her and not more on James? 
No, it said she wants James to be school president. Like, he didn't just call her a bitch. And she wants Abby to go to prison for having an abortion in a, in a state where it was legal. She think, There's no way that she thinks that Abby is connected. Miss Robertson just wants to get her in trouble. There's so much build up to their relationship without any real end game, too. It's very listless at the end. I didn't appreciate that. Her starting the fire at the high school was fine. I mean, she did get fired. <laughs> but at the same time, the school chose not to reopen. Why not move to a different venue or ship the kids off to a different school? Or if they wanted to be forgiving, why didn't they give the, sem the kids their semester's work and do online school so that they stay learning all spring? The school burnt down in January or February, so in all reality, they get to miss four or five months of school after the school had already been closed for weeks following the school shooting. No school district in the entirety of America would close down for that length of time, no matter the damage. And they definitely wouldn't say, go home everyone, you all have A's for the semester. That's fucked. No one would ever do that. But that's really the only thing I can say about the stupid plotline anymore. I think that's it. I think it was my last, oh yeah, that was my last point. Is that no, they would not have closed the school for that shit. They wouldn't have done it. It's stupid. So now, I think it's a good time to go on to character. Um, and uh, I'm hoping this will be a little quicker. And this is where I'm going to get to talk about fetishization of trauma, everybody. You finally get to learn about what I have to say about making trauma your fetish. <sighs> okay. I'm going to go through characters in their least amount of importance to their, their amount of importance. Okay, Davis's mom. We meet her for two sentences, and then she shows the same, oh my god, James is amazing, Jean, that every other character in this fucking thing does. It's all sorts of fucked up and stupid. Plus, she chooses ridiculously to blame a child for her son's death. Granted, this was partially because James came to her door instead of a competent police officer who knows how to tell somebody that their, their child died. They should have never, ever, ever allowed them to tell her if they wanted... If she, they wanted her to show up at James's house livid later, that would have been a whole different ballgame than what we got. Her character is hot-tempered and pointless outside of her making a speech about how great James is. Um, Lisa is the most next most pointless character. Lisa is James's sister and is so incredibly stupid. She could have helped James to show so much more emotion and to make people think of and to make him think about people as more than just animals, but instead she serves as a prop for James to slut shame and call a snob, basically. She's one of, like, five women in the story, and you're supposed to hate her. When we're introduced to her pain over her boyfriend dying in the school shooting, it comes way out of left field, and it's ridiculous to think that we could suddenly have sympathy for her. If, it, if that had changed James's mindset about his sister, I could believe it, but... I don't. I don't have any sympathy for her because his mindset of her never changed. The next most pointless character is Rick. Rick is pointless because Rick introduces a plot that goes nowhere. Rick is only there to make James accidentally flip out because he has to move, which is resolved in a chapter and a half anyway. If only because Abby says that she'll follow James wherever he goes. He plays no other part. He doesn't serve as a healthy male role model. He doesn't attempt to get to know James. Nothing. Not important. Moving on. Uh, Alex is also stupid and unimportant. I mentioned this before, but just because it happened in real life and you're writing something based on real life doesn't mean that it should be added if it adds nothing to your story. I mean, it kind of builds character for the school, I guess, but other than that, it's frustratingly stupid. 
He's completely pointless to mention, and it's lousy writing to make him pee into a jar, but never use that somewhere else. Maybe he wants to use the urine to go to get back at someone. You don't know. Why was it necessary to tell us that, though? Next! Mrs. Patrick is useless. Um, she's only around to keep a roof over James's head, and then she leaves. She's sort of around for some things, but ultimately just uh, fucks off to go live with her boyfriend, leaving her 17-year-old at home alone with his girlfriend. The fact that she even chose to move while James wanted to stay and barely knew her boyfriend just goes to show how selfish his mother is. From what I know, Greg's mother also had many boyfriends throughout his high school days, and they have a very rocky, tumultuous relationship, which he currently doesn't foster much of one with her. So because Greg has admitted to a strained relationship on his part, I think it's reasonable that this distance between himself and his mother is a legitimate thing and something he chose to write in to make his life more, to make James's life as similar to Greg's as possible. Uh, still, she's a worthless character, and uh, I kind of want her to go jump in a hole. Seth is a bit of a conundrum for me because his whole demeanor very much reminds me of the main character of Greg's second book, This Is Why I Hate You. Um, his poison towards other people and his abusive nature reflect each other, except that Arthur Gale from This Is Why I Hate You respects consent in your ability to choose. However, Seth has no depth. If you recall, most, most school shooters are remembered as quiet loners, not aggressive psychopaths that reveal their illness at every turn. Seth is kind of the archetype of the bad guy. Abusive, cruel, and takes joy in violence, and nothing is ever done about it. He just gets punched into a coma. He killed a bunch of people, but the school shooting that he perpetrates barely has any weight to the plot or to the emotions of the main character, besides making him scared and sad. That's it. And on top of that, I'm not sure why James and Abby weren't targets from the beginning like I mentioned earlier. It's implied that they triggered Seth's rage and that's why he shot up the school, so why wouldn't he make Abby be a target from the get-go? Like the rest of this plot's idiotic, poorly planned, choppy sections, this doesn't make any sense. Um, he's also not given enough time to develop as a character. This is why the formatting doesn't work. You flip pages so fast that the school shooting seems to come out of nowhere. We don't see any depth to Seth, so when he comes a shooting, it's not shocking or nearly as horrific because he showed his cards already. If there had been more run-ins with Seth, and perhaps as a nice guy originally and then later devolving into madness, something organic like that... It might have been a good angle, but we don't get that. We just get, as Tia from Strange Aeons puts it, a, quote, bad guy McBad, unquote. A villain for the sake of being a villain. Which, as I've said before, ya boring. Miss Robertson is the absolute worst. She doesn't act like a normal person, not that any of them speak like people either. They all talk like Greg does in his writing. Eventually, the dialogue has no weight anymore because it becomes lost in the same voice and in the paragraph block text because Greg doesn't often separate paragraphs for the text like you're supposed to fucking do whenever somebody new starts speaking. It's writing 101. But anyway... Miss Robertson doesn't react like a person at all. All she does is bitch about Abby for a million pages. Seriously, I wonder what this woman's vendetta is. It can't It can't just be because Abby might have intentionally miscarried. It, it can't be. There has to be more there. there. There has to be more. I wanted more from the depth. I wanted more depth from her too. Especially because she has more weight on the plot of this book than the school shooter. 
it's all I can really feel. It's all I, it says a lot that this is all I can say about her. She's terrible because she has no death and is constantly unreasonably bitchy to young women. <laughs> Davis is one of the worst characters in the book. Behind James, I think. Just behind James. I mentioned before that Davis is incredibly annoying and this is why. Um, he has an incredibly cringy and unfunny sense of humor where he constantly makes off-putting comments at the wrong time. The one that I can't get out of my brain is Hi-ho, silver, mammy, poppy, sickle. Oh, fuck. I can't erase that trite from my brain ever. Please note that I'm speaking about Davis, the character, not the person he was based on. I have nothing against Greg's fr friend who died. I have a thing against characters that are not funny or charming and make the f story more confusing. Davis takes away more things than he adds to this already stumbling, rushed, choppy plot. He's poorly fleshed out, and all he really serves to do is offer an unwavering hand of support despite James's poor behavior and really shitty behavior towards Davis himself. It's kind of awful, especially since I, like all viewers before all the viewers before me, was working under the impression that Davis is, in fact, gay. And honestly, that's the explanation that makes the most sense to me. Come on, Craig. Just retcon J.K. Rowling style and make Davis gay. Honestly, it would make his character so much better. You could, His cringiness could work under the assumption that Davis's humor is actually just him attempting to act the role of being gay rather than just living his life, which is a real phenomenon that young members of the LGBT community do after they first come out. Davis acting overly flamboyant in order to deal with the stress over being an out gay man in the early 2000s would have made him so much more sympathetic and interesting. Instead, what we get is a boy who's pouting because his best friend has a girlfriend. I'm gonna, you know what, I'm gonna headcanon that. Davis is a gay man who's been in love with James since middle school. It's a better explanation than, OMG, Davis is so enchanting, OMG. I'm done with Davis. Moving on. Abby. Abby, 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 Abby. Abby is a manic pixie dream girl, but with none of the flair. Imagine if Sam from Garden State looked like a stick figure and sounded like Greg at the same time. No one would watch it. Abby is damaged and whimsical, but not in any charming way. The closest she comes are her, her little puzzle to James at the beginning, and other than that, she's just a body to him, for him to cuddle and fuck and whisper sweet nothings to, and somehow his life becomes 3,000 times better because of it. But Abby also makes Greg contradict himself in so many ways in real life. In this novel, he romanticizes self-harm and abuse. He's, Greg has actively said that rape victims who don't report what happened to them to the police are just as bad as their rapists, which, um, wow. <laughs> I'm not even going to begin talking about the fucking hypocrisy there. Jesus. Greg, this is a phrase, I don't know if you've ever heard it before, but people who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones, I guess. he He's actively called people who self-harm weak idiots. Essentially, a, a quick Google can inform you of everything he's said concerning self-harming, and yet Abby isn't an idiot. He doesn't portray her as such. She's the archetype of a girl that Greg is supposed to hate, not love. But instead, she's perfect in every way, despite her incredible issues. I'm gonna quote Crimson Rogue again here. James just kisses Abby's scars and doesn't talk to her like the adult she needs. He doesn't allow her to get better. He's 
there and instantly she's better. But that's not his job. You can't just fix somebody who has issues with your devotion. The right person brings out the best in you, sure, but this is not just devotion. This is enablement of a much larger issue, which is exactly how Greg and by extension James have found the prospective lovers throughout their lives. It's not right. It's exploitative on both James's part and Greg's. (sighs) And speaking of James, James is the worst character in this book. He's the absolute worst and he's our POV. His whole mindset in this book is either trying to psychoanalyze his peers or pursuing Abby. From the very beginning, he has the mindset that he's better than everyone else, including the reader, I think. He reduces his classmates to stereotypes, even though they all have their own thoughts and goals and opinions in life, just like we all do. Reducing someone to the dumb, attention-seeking drama kid and the bleached blonde bimbo does not take into account anything about them in real life and, frankly, turns your reader off from ever stepping foot into the book. It's part of the reason why I had such a lot of trouble reading Catcher in the Rye. As an empath, you can't hear about that kind of stuff and you, you can't understand it because it's so alien to you. Everything about James is off-putting. He thinks he's incredibly smart and wonderful, but his thinking is sophomoric and faux-philosophical. It's very frustrating, to be honest. Further than that, Greg chose to make his self-insert character someone who everyone seems to love. Abby falls in love with him very quickly, Davis loves him unreasonably much, and the only person who actively picks on him besides his romantic rivals is his sister, who is a much stronger woman in comparison to Abby, but we know that she wouldn't couldn't be a good person because Lisa is promiscuous. Even Mrs. Robertson sees him as her personal pet project, but beyond this, Greg is held up on such a pedestal that he does almost no self-reflection and no real inward criticism. He's cringy and stupid, and he sees none of these as as flaws, so he's a Gary Stew archetype. The phrase Gary Stew is incredibly overused, but here it's applicable. He's just here to save his frail waifu and beat up jocks and get noticed by the president, who, by the way, never gets a name for some re- weird reason, and which really kind of fucked with me. And then he gets to fuck his waifu after she cries for the five billionth time. She's either crying or hugging him. There's no one between here. And on top of it, Greg chose this story to come back and make himself believe that his high school self was better than he actually was. This whole thing is his messed up hero complex fantasy and it's incredibly gross to read about as he exploits Abby with tidbits of painful sex scenes and unerotic flirting. And I'd like to go and murder myself with this book if I have to talk about it, but I guess I have to now. This is when I need to talk about what I was hoping I wouldn't have to and that is fetishization of trauma making and fetishizing trauma which basically means you get off on somebody's traumatic backstory greg has said that this book is supposed to be a better version of his life in high school of all the horrible things that could happen in high school why would you choose to put a school shooting in your book if it has no true impact on the main character After a certain point, the school shooting is barely mentioned, and the only purpose of it is to get James closer with his girlfriend and eventually into her bed. 
This leads me to the logical conclusion that Greg fetishizes trauma for his own personal gain. People are much easier to control when they've been fairly recently traumatized. That's why he chose the people he did to victimize with his spouse. He recently outed one of the survivors for having been raped. We know that his spouse, Kai, has been violated. One of the others had her underage nudes leaked online. One of their vi- one of Kai's victims, who is female to male transgender as well, was in the middle of transitioning, which is an incredibly emotionally complex process. Another one of their exes had been raped before their relationship began. At the end of it, he fetishizes their trauma and slept with them as much as he could because it fed into his personal power and his sexual urges. I have no doubt that he has a sick, he does have a sick fascination with BDSM and other power dynamics, which are all healthy, assuming that you know how to dominate somebody properly, how to provide aftercare, which according to Shiloh, he absolutely does not. Greg has to hold the upper hand in his relationships no matter what. It's actually very Christian Grey-esque, which I never thought I would be saying. This is the biggest thing that I wanted you to take away. He included a traumatic event in his novel for the sake of trauma. For the sake of his character, his self-insert character being able to get off with the girl that he likes. That's not right. When you use trauma for the sake of trauma, the story becomes inauthentic in and of itself. We just hopscotch around here to the most horrible things that you can come into contact with in schools. And we don't know how to get away from them because they're so inextricably tied to Greg's sense of entitlement. This whole thing feels like a cobbled together selection of moments that Greg so very desperately wanted to make a reality. He wanted a reality where everyone feeds into his narcissistic plans to save a woman who should really be getting professional help. But then again, Greg has also demonized antidepressants and has said that he has made his partner stop taking their, quote, head meds, unquote, because he likes them better when they're off of their medication. I suppose that Abby could have never been allowed to go to real therapy and seek a real fix in this novel because that would mean that Greg didn't save her and that is a concept that he just cannot handle. I know that this part is very much speculation, but I felt that it needed to be brought up. The central message of this book is, don't go to anyone with authority who can help you. I, an untrained person, will fix you right up and protect you from the dark, scary world. And I think that that's so incredibly dangerous, especially since at the time this was written, many, many people were active fans of Onision and most of them were under the age of 16, or at the very least under the age of 18. That's dangerous. I'm only 22 myself. And I can tell you right now, my 17-year-old self would not have been in any way, shape, or form mature enough to handle something like this. There's no way in hell. This is dangerous writing at that point because of the audience it was written for. This is dangerous. This is wrong. And this is why people who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones, Greg. This is exactly why you are in as much trouble as you are right now. And you know that, too. Chris Hansen doesn't come knocking at your door if you're innocent, man. It just doesn't. So stop throwing stones, Greg. Grow up. And that concludes my review of Stones to Abigail. I hope you liked this because it was this is lengthy as hell. I'm only going to go through a couple 
of the other reviews, um, because I know I referenced both Strange Aeons and Crimson Rogue five or six times a piece in this, so I would suggest that if you want a really good review of the books, of, of this book, or of in Onision's other books, because they both covered all three, I would go to their channels, which I'm going to link in the YouTube description. I can't exactly link anything on it from anywhere else. Um, so if you'd like to go to the YouTube channel, So Below Average Podcast, and look that up for those reviews, um, because I think they are at the very least the most comprehensive and tell the right story and show the right narrative. And I'm sure you'll probably pick up on little things that I've said that I got from those guys that I didn't shout out in the moment because I'm an idiot. Um, but just so you know, I have the utmost respect for both of their work and no plagiarism if there was any is necessary as well as you got to remember that we are talking about the same topic so it gets a little the lines get a little blurred at times so uh without further ado i want to talk a little bit about the other reviews this is something that i didn't realize at first greg actually asked his fans to spam the amazon comments with things about dinosaurs so i found quite a few of those and i was like what the fuck is this so I'm going to go ahead and read a couple from Goodreads and a couple from Amazon real quick. This is Goodreads. Jesse rated it as amazing. It said, this is the best book you will ever pick up. Definitely an hour well spent. I freaking loved this book. I loved how not once in this entire story does James mention what Abigail looks like. Seriously, not even once. All I know is that she has hair and legs and two arms, just like, and two arms and two legs, just like me. Davis is not creepy at all. He does not exist solely to tell James how great he is and how much he loves him. That's not creepy. That's, you know, love. We definitely do not learn about Davis in a setting other than the bus that James goes on every day. I also know that Davis has hair and eyes. Not sure about the arms and legs, though. James is 17, and he likes Abigail because she's pretty. She al he also magically gains superpowers when he needs to protect his girlfriend from mean people because she can't fend for herself. Basically, they're living in a strange world called DreamWorks, and Shrek James likes to stay by himself. He has a best friend named Donkey Davis, and we know that he is his best friend because Davis has no other personality except for kissing James's ass. James falls in love with a beautiful princess, Fiona Abigail, and together they defeat Lord Farquaad, jocks, and meanies who don't want them to be together. The jock, who will stay unnamed due to privacy reasons, wants to date Sh Abigail, but Shrek James got to her first. Hugh. There are so many characters to keep straight. Oh, yeah, there might have been a school shooting or something, correctly, but I don't remember because it wasn't very interesting. Right. Samantha Reed rated this and didn't like it. To start off simply, this book is trash. There's nothing good about this book, like, at all. If I could rate it any lower, then I would. The characters have zero personality, for starters, except the protagonist, James, who is judgmental, narcissistic, and obsessive. He manipulates the girl he loves, Abby, and, to take, and takes advantage of her weakened emotional state. For Pete's sake, he sent her a love letter that, to tell her that only he can heal her scars. Keep in mind, James sends Abby this letter a mere two days after he talks to her for the first time. I didn't actually mention this in my review. Two days. Not to mention, Abby had just gotten out of, out of an abusive relationship. Of course, this book is riddled with numerous grammatical and spelling errors. You can tell that the author hasn't picked up a book in 15 years. A 30-year-old man does not know how to use a comma. They teach basic grammar in elementary school. 
an eighth grader knows how to use grammar better than the author. I use the term author very generously. The plot is also trash. The problems are introduced in the beginning of the chapter and then immediate and then are immediately solved by either the end of the chapter or the beginning of the next. The plot is just so contrived. There's nothing salvageable about this book. In order for it to at least be a decent novel, it would have to be completely reworked. It's overall filled with crappy metaphors that reads more like a bad fan fiction than an actual published book. It's so obvious that this was self-published because no publishing company in their right mind would publish this tripe. Girl, you're not wrong. <laughs> you're not wrong. That's why he was able to self-publish this, because he knew that nobody would ever take this. He just needed to be cool and a published author, and that makes him hashtag so smart. Alright, Amazon reviews. I'm only going to do one big one of these. I was curious and checked this title out. Blew me away with how bad it was written. Not by an actual author and not edited by any professionals either. Nothing wrong with having ebooks instead of publishing in print, but this was just awful. Terrible story, bad grammar, cookie cutter characters, a narcissistic Gary Stu main character. I read somewhere someone commented that this was written by someone who claimed to never read books. Well, it shows. I wish I had known that before buying. There's no excuse for this laziness. If you put out a product, at least try to learn how to craft it first. Never reading books and never trying to learn to write makes for something poor like this. Right, actually, I'm going to do the second one that I have too, because that one was a little shorter than I expected. This book has little to no respect, understanding, or empathy when it comes to characters who have been abused, suffer from mental illness, or who have been through traumatic experiences. Abused is tacked onto the female protagonist, Abigail, like it's the only thing that makes her interesting. James is self-absorbed, and the antagonists are evil for the sake of just being evil. It reminds me of someone who read Catcher in the Rye one too many times and tried to recreate Holden's feeling of isolation without fully understanding the bigger themes of the novel. I expect better from an author who has such strong opinions and hope that Greg uses his platform in a more conducive manner in his future works. And then my favorite review. I loved it when Obi-Wan Kenobi slayed Onision. <laughs> I love these joke reviews. I would have done more of them. But I felt like talking about the, you know, the dark themes of this and what it does for people was a bit more important. <sighs> okay. So my last review is, of course, my own. This book is an absolutely horrendous experience. Onision's writing is, in every way, unfortunate if you come across it. There's no craft, there's no humor, there's so many terrible messages that I could barely count them all. And above all of this, this book leads, people, leads to people reading about how the love of the right person is better than seeking help for trauma. The prose is awful, the formatting is atrocious, the plot is choppy and terrible, there's almost nothing redeemable about this book, and I almost didn't finish it the last time I read it. This is a book that should be read by absolutely no one, bought by absolutely no one, and if you want to read it, I beg of you to find the PDF or order from a secondhand seller instead. Don't give him any money, he does not deserve it. And please, after this, if I can say anything, don't go to his YouTube, don't touch his content, don't give him money. I give this book a one stone out of ten. 
for those of you wondering, it is, it's in my plans to review both of the other Anisian books. This is why I hate you and Reaper's Creek. However, I'm going to need at least six months worth of recovery time between books, so unless something comes up where I want to review the books earlier than that, I wouldn't expect a sequel to this until somewhere between July and August, if not later, September or October. Um, this is going to need some recovery time, and I've got a lot going on. If you guys are wondering what's coming up next, I have a great episode that I've been looking forward to doing for a really long time. The next episode will be called Global Warming and Gordon Ramsay. All right, everybody. This has been the So Below Average podcast. Please join us again next week on March 4th. If you feel so inclined, please follow my Twitter page at So Below Average 1. That's S O B E L O W A V E R A G E 1 on Twitter. If you're listening on YouTube, please feel free to subscribe, like, and share these videos so I can reach more people who enjoy suffering like I do. Don't forget to click the notification bell so you'll be informed of exactly when I add a new episode. And if you'd like, please follow our Instagram page at SoBelowAveragePodcast for reference images or for fun, because I post a lot of fun images, I think. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, please reach out to me at any of our social media or at BelowAverage19 at gmail.com. Thank you guys so much for listening. I've had a lot of people, I've had my Instagram grow quite a lot the last couple of weeks, and it's been kind of fun to watch. Um, All these podcasts keep following me. It's kind of fun. Thank you guys so much for listening. Um, I hope you guys have a really great day, and that I didn't bum you out too much with talking about fetishization of trauma. And just remember not to go anywhere near this book. It's so below average. Bye, guys.